Welcome to Episode 4 of History of the Marine Corps, Samuel Nicholas. Last week we discussed Samuel and Joshua Carpenter, brothers from Horsham, England who moved to Philadelphia, made significant contributions, and opened the infamous Tun Tavern. We also started to look into the operations of the Tun Tavern and discuss some of the proprietors, the unique partnership between the Eight Partners Brewery and the Tun, some clubs that were founded at the Tavern, two of which included the Masonic Lodge and the Governor's Club, and the Tun's contribution to fine dining. We ended the episode by introducing Robert Mullen, the first chief recruiter in the Marine Corps who would serve under Samuel Nicholas. This week we dig a little further into the unofficial Commandant of the Marine Corps, Samuel Nicholas, his life, and some of his contributions to Philadelphia and the Marine Corps. Thanks for joining, now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. Samuel Nicholas was the son of Andrew Nicholas, a very affluent Quaker blacksmith in the late 18th century, and also a Freemason who frequently attended meetings at Tun Tavern. Andrew married Mary Shute Nicholas, who also came from a prosperous family in Philadelphia, and the two gave birth to Samuel in 1744. The exact date isn't known, but best estimates put his birth around February. Samuel Nicholas's uncle was Atwood Shute who would become the mayor of Philadelphia from 1756 to 1758. Nicholas came from a very affluent family, and his notoriety would follow him throughout his life. When Nicholas turned seven, his uncle, Atwood Shute, would sponsor his admission to the Academy of Philadelphia, or what is today known as the University of Pennsylvania, which was conceptualized by Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin was born on January 17, 1706 in Boston, and he was the son of a candle and soap maker and one of 17 children. Franklin did not have a formal education, and his schooling ended when he was 10 years old. Franklin loved to read and read often. He taught himself to become a skilled writer. When he was 12 years old, Franklin was apprenticed to one of his older brothers, James, who was a printer in Boston. Franklin excelled in that career field, and at the age of 16, he was contributing essays to a newspaper published by his brother, and under the pen name Silence Do Good. A year later, Benjamin Franklin would run away to Philadelphia to work as a printer and go on to be one of the most recognizable and most influential people in United States history. In Franklin's autobiography, he stated that in 1743, he drew up a proposal for establishing an academy and proposed Richard Peters, a lawyer and local official, to be the superintendent. However, Peters found more profit in the tavern trade as a proprietor and initially declined this role. Six years later, Franklin would publish a pamphlet titled Proposals Relating to the Education of Youth in Pennsylvania, which outlined his views and led directly to the founding of the Academy of Philadelphia. He supported a groundbreaking notion of higher education, one that would teach both the ornamental and emotional knowledge of the arts and the practical skills necessary for making a living and contributing through public service. On August 13, 1751, the Academy of Philadelphia, using the Great Hall at 4th and Arch Streets, took in its first secondary students. Samuel Nicholas was one of the first students to attend. Samuel Nicholas completed his education at the Academy of Philadelphia at the age of 15. Once he graduated, he became heavily involved with high society in Philadelphia. When Nicholas turned 16, he was allowed entry into the Schoolkill Fishing Company. 
the first angling club in the colonies and remains the oldest continuously operating social club in the world. This was a very prestigious club and was established in 1732 under a treaty with the chiefs of the Lenny Lenape tribe. Members built their first courthouse near the city of Philadelphia on the west side of the Schuylkill River. At the time, the land was complete wilderness and the number of fish almost filled the river. In 1766, Nicholas would organize the Gloucester Fox Hunting Club, which was one of the first hunting clubs in America. Most organized clubs at the time were made up of prominent aristocrats. However, the Gloucester Fox Hunting Club was a little different, and most of their members were prominent in the civic and military life in Philadelphia. They weren't wealthy men and had to pool their money together to fund their hobby. They created what we now know as subscriptions as a way for everyone to contribute and fund their hobby. They met one to two times a week to hunt, but had a dry spout between 1775 and 1780 due to the American Revolutionary War. The club had a pack of English foxhounds, and its uniform was adopted in 1774, which consisted of a dark brown cloth coatee with lapel dragoon pockets, white buttons and frock sleeves, buff waistcoat and breeches, and a black velvet cap. They had about 16 fleet hounds that were managed by Samuel Morris's slave, Old Nat, who would serve as Knight of the Whip and later became Master and Commander of all the hounds. Old Nat was paid $50 a year, provided a house, a horse, and an assistant. He would eventually save enough money to buy his freedom. Two years after opening the Gloucester Fox Hunting Club, Samuel Nicholas married Mary Jenkins, who was the daughter of Charles Jenkins, a well-established businessman and owner of the Conestoga Wagon, a tavern in colonial Philadelphia. After their marriage, Nicholas took over the Conestoga Wagon. If you listen to the past two episodes, you will understand that tavern trade in colonial America was a thriving business, and many who participated made a good living brewing and serving alcohol to the local community. Nicholas was not an exception, and he and his wife made a decent living owning the Conestoga Wagon. Nicholas and Mary had three children. His daughter was said to be engaged to Washington Irving, also nicknamed the first American man of letter, an author of Rip Van Winkle and The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Nicholas also had two sons, Samuel and Charles Jenkins. Nicholas had a pretty standard life. However, around this time, the Second Continental Congress is convening in Philadelphia and will change that. Many of the 56 delegates from the First Continental Congress were present for the second. However, the Second Continental Congress had some new faces as well, some of which are still familiar to this day. Benjamin Franklin joined the Pennsylvania delegation. John Hancock joined from Massachusetts and Thomas Jefferson joined from Virginia. The Second Continental Congress was to manage the colonial war effort and move towards independence. War wasn't the first or only solution to independence. For years, the colonies have been negotiating with the motherland to negotiate a plan on how to manage and rule the colonies. But after years of failings, the effort seemed fruitless. In a vote during the Dickinson debates, one last attempt was made to avoid war between the colonies and Great Britain. In a very close vote, Congress decided to try one more time to submit another petition to Great Britain. At this time, many who sat in Congress felt that war was inevitable. But John Dickinson, a Pennsylvania delegate, drafted the Olive Branch Petition as a last attempt. The Olive Branch Petition was approved and adopted by Congress on July 5, 1775. This petition pledged the colony's loyalty to the Crown, but asserted their rights as British citizens. However, on July 6, the very next day, Congress issues a declaration of the necessity for taking up arms. 
This document was drafted by John Dickinson as well, and explained how the colonies repeatedly petitioned the British government for a decade despite unconstitutional acts by British troops. The document states that the colonies have taken up arms in defense of the freedom that is our birthright, in which we ever enjoyed until the late violation of it, and will lay them down when hostilities shall cease on the part of the aggressors. Some believe that the Olive Branch petition was deceitful, since the Declaration of Necessity for Taking Up Arms was published the next day, knowing that the Olive Branch petition would not make it to Britain and King George before the release. When the Olive Branch petition eventually arrived in Great Britain, the king refused to see it and made his position clear before the petition even reached Britain. The king stated, In light of various disorderly acts committed in disturbance of the public peace, to the obstruction of lawful commerce, and to the oppression of our loyal subjects, the king declared that the colonists were in, quote, open and avowed rebellion and levying war against us, end quote. He labeled the colonies as traitors, and the king's decision to not read the document made many colonists realize that the next move was either complete independence from Great Britain or submission to the king. This would be the start of America's military. Days after the debate, the Second Continental Congress authorized support for a 10,000-man army in Massachusetts, a 5,000-man army in New York, six companies of riflemen in Pennsylvania, and Maryland and Virginia would raise two companies each. A major problem Congress faced when developing an army was finding someone to lead it. The colonies had experienced the occasional battles with British troops and local Indian tribes. Some colonists even fought alongside Great Britain at times and served in their military. However, the colonies did not have an experienced general to lead their newly formed army. There were a few contenders, but Congress decided to settle on the one and only George Washington. In hindsight, we now see that George Washington was a right choice. But in 1775, Washington did not do much to stand out as a superior military leader. He fought in the French and Indian Wars and was the commander of the Virginia Militia, but he was mostly a peacetime leader. He spent most of his time as a farmer and part-time politician. Washington started to attend congressional meetings in his Virginia Militia uniform. This played a major factor in the decision to select Washington as the next general, and many stated he, quote, looks like a military commander, end quote. On June 15, 1775, during a great speech, John Adams officially made George Washington his nominee as Commander-in-Chief. George Washington was asked to leave the room so Congress could decide and vote. With little debate, Congress unanimously voted for Washington as their first Commander-in-Chief. In a speech given to the Continental Congress, Washington accepted the commission and requested that he not receive a salary for his service only that his expenses be paid at the conclusion of the war. Congress also realized that they would need a navy to fight against Great Britain. Britain had one of the most lethal navies in the world. The original mission of the Continental Navy was to attack and capture transport ships and steal supplies from Britain. On August 13, 1775, Congress authorized the purchase and arming of two ships for attacking merchant vessels and the future purchase of a third ship. In November of 1775, 13 more ships would be purchased to defend the coastline. With an army and navy created, Congress started focusing on authorizing a third branch of military to serve on board the navy vessels, Marines. At the time, the colonies were short on cash and the army was already established. Congress initially planned to create the Marine Corps from drawing upon the army. However, after much debate and consideration, on November 10, 1775, 
Under the Continental Marine Act of 1775, the Second Continental Congress resolved that two battalions of Marines be raised. The Second Continental Congress needed someone to lead the two battalion of Marines, and they looked toward Samuel Nicholas, not because of any formal military training, but because of his established role in Philadelphia society. The Naval Committee agreed on Nicholas as the Captain of Marines on November 5, 1775. And on November 28, 1775, Samuel Nicholas was commissioned as the first Captain of the Marine Corps and tasked with raising two battalions of Marines. Congress set his pay to $32 a month, and his commission was signed by John Hancock. If you want to take a look, I have a copy of his commission on historyofthemarinecorps.com under this episode. As I mentioned in last week's podcast, there is some debate on where the first recruitment drive took place. All Marines listening are aware of the story. The United States Marine Corps was founded on November 10, 1775, and Marines were recruited in Tun Tavern, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, by First Chief Marine Recruiter Robert Mullen. Now there are some holes in this story. Robert Mullen's family did own Tun Tavern, but he didn't actually receive a commission as captain until June 1776. Legends state that Mullen was so talented at convincing men to join the Marines through the serving of alcohol that he was eventually commissioned as captain in the Marine Corps. There isn't evidence for this, and there isn't formal evidence that the Marine Corps was founded in Tun Tavern. Edwin Simmons, Marine Corps Brigadier General who served from 1942 to 1978, and author of the United States Marines, A History, stated that the most likely origin of the Marine Corps recruitment drive was in Nicholas's Conestoga wagon. The Second Continental Congress tasked Nicholas to recruit two battalions of Marines, and it seems unlikely that he would have waited until June of 1776 to do so. Nicholas did know and was friends with Mullen. However, Nicholas most likely started recruiting in his own tavern, and Mullen recruited in Tun Tavern when he came on board in 1776. Now, there isn't a lot of documentation on a Conestoga wagon, nor is there any evidence of the first recruitment drive happening in Tun Tavern, so it's hard to argue about the origin of the first recruitment drive, but we do know Nicholas was tasked with recruiting Marines. The resolution of the Continental Congress established the basic officer grades for the Marines. Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel, Major, end quote, other officers as usual in other regiments, end quote. This most likely meant captains, lieutenants, and ensigns, which were common practice of the day. Marines never utilized a title ensign, but did use first and second lieutenant, which we still use and see today. The Marine Corps needed uniforms, and Samuel Nicholas recommended a design to the Naval Committee that reflected the uniforms worn in the Gloucester Fox Hunting Club which he established in 1766. The Gloucester Fox Hunting Club also had many of its members join the Revolutionary War. And 22 of the Gloucester Fox Hunting Club members would serve in the 1st Cavalry during the Revolutionary War. On September 5, 1776, the Naval Committee published the Continental Marines Uniform Regulations. Green coats with white lapels, white cuffs, and white coat lining, and a leather high collar. Neck stocks were very common in the 18th century and were a gentleman's most formal neckwear. Neck stocks were usually fine white linen, pleated to fit beneath a man's chin. This style made its way into the military's uniform, except the linen was replaced with a solid piece of leather. A few theories exist on why the neck straps were used. 1. Leather neck straps were designed to be uncomfortable so the head would stay up and the marine would stay awake. 2. At the time, Hunters commonly used linen neck stocks as a first aid tool, 
it would be used as a temporary bandage until first aid could be provided to the man or his horse. And three, it was a defense against sword slashes, although this theory was most likely not the case. The leather used for neck straps was thin and would not do a great job protecting against sword slashes. Sailors who were serving with marines would often make fun of them by calling them leathernecks. Marines would stop issuing leather stocks in 1872, but would still embrace the nickname. The term leatherneck is still commonly used today, and a tribute to the leatherneck strap is found in the Marine Corps dress blue uniform. Captain Samuel Nicholas was able to raise five companies of Marines and sailed them under Commodore Isaac Hopkins, the first and only commander-in-chief of the Continental Navy. Their first mission was to the Bahamas. In March 1776, Nicholas led 284 men in a raid on Nassau. The British were caught by surprise and Nicholas was able to capture two forts, 88 cannons, 15 mortars, and multiple military stores. The raid on Nassau was the first amphibious landing for Marines, the first joint effort with the Navy, and one of the most successful naval operations of the Revolutionary War. We will discuss this battle in detail when we start digging into the Revolutionary War. After the raid of Nassau, Samuel Nicholas returned to Philadelphia and resumed his original mission of recruiting and training Marines, and on June 25th, he was promoted to Major. Due to manpower shortages and various strategic considerations, Nicholas did not meet Congress's goal of recruiting two battalions of Marines. Because of this, Nicholas would never get promoted higher than Major. Nicholas was called into action again and assisted General Washington in defeating the Hessians in Trenton and Princeton, New Jersey. He led three companies, 131 men, later reduced to 80, in the Trenton-Princeton campaign. He and his men would be transferred to artillery on February 1, 1777, and there they remained in the field with General Washington until the following spring when their terms of enlistment expired. Samuel Nicholas was a senior officer but did not have a field command. Major Nicholas continued supervising recruiting and logistics in support of ships' detachments of Marines. By the time of the British surrender at Yorktown, the Marines' role had diminished and in 1783, the then 39-year-old Nicholas gave up military life and returned to his business and social life in Philadelphia. He was a member of the Pennsylvania Society of Sanatorium from 1785 until 1788, serving on the Standing Committee. More commonly known as the State Society of the Cincinnati of Pennsylvania, it was established to honor those people who gave up everything to serve the Republic during the Revolutionary War. Two years after giving up the Society, Nicholas died on August 27, 1790, during a yellow fever epidemic. Samuel Nicholas, unofficially the first Commandant of the United States Marine Corps, is buried at the Old Quaker Cemetery at the historic Arch Street Meeting House in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. His grave was left unmarked according to the Quaker traditions, which he observed. On June 1, 2013, with the approval of the Quaker proprietors, the Marine Corps League officially installed a modest, colonial-style marker with Nicholas's name on it. On June 1, 2013, with the approval of the Quaker proprietors, the Marine Corps League officially installed a modest, colonial-style marker with Nicholas's name on it. Now, we're certainly not done with Samuel Nicholas and we'll get into his battles in more details as we begin to discuss Marine involvement during the Revolutionary War. We touched on Congress's decision to create the Army, Navy, and Marine Corps, and now the colonies are ready for war. Next week, we'll start setting the stage by discussing the events leading up to the decision to fight Britain 
and the role Marines will have in the Revolutionary War. Thanks for joining. Next week we will get a little closer to the birth of the Marine Corps and explore the events leading to the Revolutionary War, which will touch on the need for a Marine Corps. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each episode, which includes references used. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you like what you're hearing, tell a friend. We rely on listeners like you to share and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you're hearing, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for more ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.